God has put on His heart. And thank you, Zach. With the talk that's going on of the church and how God's wrath is being tempered by His love in such a fickle manner, I shall give thought to at least one instance as to how God dealt with His church. I'll start off by just reading an intro in Ezekiel chapter 3. Son of man, eat what I whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go. Speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said, Son of man, feed your belly with this that I give you and fill your stomach. I ate it and it was sweet as honey. I'm going to be giving short summaries on earlier chapters so I can speak on chapter 5 of Ezekiel specifically. In chapter 1, Ezekiel seen the glory of the Lord and the angels have appeared to him and amazed him. In chapter 2, starting with verse 3, the problem is being mentioned. And he says to me, Son of man, I send you to people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. He continues talking about them being impudent, stubborn, rebellious until verse 8. And in verse 8, he tells Ezekiel to not be like them, to not be like Israel, stubborn, hard-headed. Open your mouth, eat what I give you. Then in chapter 3, verses 7 to 11, he continues, God continues to reiterate the problem. Unwilling to listen, rebellious, hard forehead, stubborn heart, impudent. In verse 8 of chapter 3, Ezekiel has a small glimmer of hope. Says that God is going to make Ezekiel more harder, more stubborn than the rest of Israel, only in God's favor. God is going to charge Ezekiel with a task, and God isn't simply making him as powerful as what he's going up against, he's making him more powerful. It's not the uh, trite statement that God won't tell you to do something you can't do. This is a bold pronouncement. It's a statement that I'm not simply going to have you succeed. I'm going to have you exceed. And in verses 16 and 21 of chapter 3, God has then given Ezekiel his charge. Say, tell Israel the warnings. Tell them what I tell you. And if you don't, their blood will be on your hands as well as theirs. It's making Ezekiel just as responsible as those who commit the sins for not telling them the difference between right and wrong, for not trying to save their life. 
Now we move on to chapter 4 where it gets illustrative. And God is telling Ezekiel that a siege is going to come. That Nebuchadnezzar's siege is going to happen and it's going to be bad in the city. Jerusalem was 20... The walls were 21 feet thick, give or take. Anyone worth two cents will have to admit that nobody could have taken that city if God wasn't on their side. A 21-foot thick wall is unheard of. That is amazing. And it was a bold statement. I mean, this was God's city. This was housing God's sanctuary. God was putting it on display. Jerusalem was His joy. It was Israel's joy. He wasn't going to let it be a little dinky thing. He took meticulous time to state how the sanctuary was to be built, how beautiful it was to be. And in chapter 4, we see it being sieged and how hard it was going to be living in the town. And this was God starting to show exactly how displeased he was. In chapters 2, 3, 4, it speaks on the abominations that were going on within Israel, within the church, within the elders of the church. It continues speaking about the abominations in chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. To show to show how God relates to such bad things, uh, Adam did a sin, and he lost communion with God, spiritual, physical death. He, God had condescended to such a point where Adam was walking with him. And because of a sin, all of that was stripped away and it was given to every man after him. In Joshua chapter 7, I believe, because of one man, Israel couldn't overtake a small town. Why um, Joshua had sent 3,000 men to take a, a town and Joshua had been through this. He knows that God's on their side. They're going to win. And because of a man, Israel was beaten and run fleeing and Joshua and the elders had to repent. And I want to say verse 11, maybe 12 of Joshua. Uh, jo- uh, Joshua is asking God, what? What's going on? Why why are we losing? God says, you sinned, therefore you lose. And that was because of a man. Because of a man, all of Israel suffered the punishment, suffered the consequence. And now, I wanted to specifically talk about Israel, with Nebuchadnezzar sieging against it. This is everybody. Everybody is being included within this within God's covenant, within God's church. 
no distinction is going to be made. In chapter 5, starting in verse 2, we see thirds. A third part you shall burn in the fire in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are complete. A third part of you shall take and strike with the sword all around the city. A third part shall be scattered to the wind. I will unsheathe the sword after them. And again in verse 12. A third part of you shall die of pestilence, be consumed with famine. A third part shall fall by the sword around you. And a third part I will scatter to the winds and will unsheathe the sword against them. Chase them. There is no partiality being given here. The church in its entirety is being dealt with. In the sanctuary, the elders are making their own idolatry in the secret rooms, in their hearts. They are extremely idolatrous. Whenever the elders of anything become bad... That is what they're going to teach. Same way with the Canaanites. God said, wipe them off the face of the earth. They were bad, and their mothers and children were going to be bad. Bad teaches bad. Bad trains them. So we have Israel being taught by bad people. And God... I want to start in verse 6. In verse 5 it states that Israel was put on display, was put in the center of all the nations around her, making her, putting her on the pedestal where she should have been. I mean, this was God's glory being displayed in Israel. That's what's supposed to be. He's going to put His bride on display for everyone to see. And in verse 6, she rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations around her and against my statutes more than the countries around her. For they rejected my rules and not walked in my statutes. Therefore, says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are around you and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules and have not even acted according to the rules of the nations around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I, even I, am against you. I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of all the nations. And because of all of your abominations, I will do with you what I have never done before, and the like of which I will never do again. God has used wording like this before. He wiped people off the face of the world. Noah, done. I don't know how Ezekiel at this point could have not lost hope. Because he's been told in the previous chapters that Israel is bad. They are very bad. And my wrath is going to be poured out on them. But there was a glimmer of hope. The like of which I will never do again. There is a small hope. In verse 10, Therefore fathers shall eat their sons, sons shall eat their fathers. I will execute judgments on you, and any of you who survive I will scatter. 
Therefore, as I live, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and abominations, I will withdraw. My eye will not spare. I will have no pity. You don't get this from modern horror movies. Fathers eating sons, sons eating fathers. What the main point is is the seriousness of the living conditions, the direness. Yes, this is a pronouncement, but they didn't revert to cannibalism because they were all of their abominations. It's Throughout the previous chapter, it speaks of how famine and pestilence is going to hit. What this is attacking is the seriousness of how bad this is going to be. It's going to be so bad, you're going to do everything and anything just to live. And even if you live, I'm going to scatter you. I'm going to run you off and chase you with the sword. It's saying that even though you, even if you live through all of these terrible things, I'm not done. You are still my target. And in verse 13, Thus my anger shall spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them, and satisfy myself. And they shall know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken in my jealousy when I send my fury upon them. The title of my outline was Holiness of God and A Dealing with the Church. In my development of this sermon, it has changed three times. First, it was the wrath of God. Then it became the jealousy of God. Then it became the holiness of God. I'll fix you. I started off as the wrath of God because it was very apparent. This was the wrath of God being displayed on His church his bride, his glory. And then it changed to jealousy because it says that I have sent you my wrath because I've spoken in my jealousy. And I thought it was going to stop there. What is God jealous of? God is jealous of his glory, his holiness, how good he is. And whenever His holiness is attacked, impartiality is out the window. We know that there are consequences for sin. And perhaps some of the time, we lull ourselves into the fact that as long as it is not eternal punishment, as long as we do not have an eternal consequence then we can forget our sins and forgive our sins very easily as well as the sins of the church there is a very real corporal punishment involved when dealing with the church we speak of the body we speak of how we are one And it's very nice to think that the sins of a brother won't be on our hands. 
and I'm going to let your own thought take this, but there are people who we see on TV who speak of this and that in a very fickle manner and do not handle it justly, are not fair to it. We reap the consequences, good and bad, of that. We see benefits, like how we help the church in the Russian church. We freely give, and they freely get the benefits. So do we. We do too. We receive those blessings. We receive the letters, talking of their stories, enjoying them. We also receive and reap the bad consequences as well. As good example as when unbelievers say they got spurned at a church and never went back. We reap those consequences. We rationalize and say, well, it was just that church, they were wrong, but not all churches are like that. Yes, it's true, but we still reap those benefits and consequences. Because that church acted inappropriately or done inappropriate things, we have the consequences and we are the ones who have to explain ourselves as, we, as if we are the same way, as if we are all the same. God continues talking in chapters 7, 8, 9, 10 on how the elders are doing terrible things. Uh, they're idolatrous in heart, which is terrible in the first place, but it gets worse, and they give illustrations of how in the sanctuary itself they're put, they have put up their idols. Yes, they're very bad things. And everybody gets to reap the consequences. We are bound by duty to pray for believers and we are duty bound to pray for unbelievers the problem is we can't tell which is which and therefore we have to pray in some way to God to fix the church because the church is where it has to be unbelievers are always going to be unbelievers the United States had a good foot in the door early in its creation because at that time, piety, morals, good morals, were still imbibed in them. The church had recently went through a very strong phase where the Bible is the Bible is the Bible. And the further you go, the worse it's gotten. Uh, There's only two options if you look at the United States. Either it's getting better or worse. If you say it's getting better, good for you. If you say it's getting worse, there's only one option. Unbelievers are unbelievers. They have never changed. Why has this country gotten worse? That's what it comes down to. Unbelievers are unbelievers. Why has this country gotten worse? 
If they haven't changed, who has? There's also talk of how Christians can be immune to the wrath of God. And how they, since they have Christ in them, they do not have to fear God. There are plenty enough examples where God gives good reason to fear Him. I I was in Ezekiel, and that's why I gave the Ezekiel example. Ezekiel shows the church in its wholeness, wheat and tare, being judged together. In chapter 11... Starting in verse 13, I want to say. Maybe. Oh, there. In chapter 13 is where we see Ezekiel. You almost see him starting to understand even more fully. We have this siege against Jerusalem. We have terrible things happening. And then even after that, we have the third part that didn't die from pestilence, famine, sword, fire, being chased and scattered. And it says, while I was prophesying, the son of Benaiah died. And I fell down on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, O Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? Now, I would like to say that out of the whole of Israel that has been attacked, a third part died, a third part died, and a third part survived. And I would love to be able to say how that third part was pure and innocent. That two-thirds were not the remnant and the third was. Unfortunately, I cannot say that. Scripture does not speak like that. It has been speaking of the church as a whole. Therefore, the third part that died by fire, wheat and tear. Third part that died by sword, wheat and tear. The third part that was scattered to the wind, wheat and tear. But Ezekiel has finally started to understand something. If he had already forgot about Noah and all those fun times where God spoke that he was going to hmm, do the like of which I will never do again. Here it is. Will you make a full end of us? Are you giving up? God's already said he's going to withdraw and have no pity. Should have asked that a while ago. But in verse 16 to 20, we have our hope. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, though I removed them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they have come there, 
I will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations, and I will give them one heart, a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, keep my rules, and obey them. And they shall be my people. I will be their God. We finally have our hope. Though I have done this to them, though I have scattered them, though I have killed them, I shall, I will be a sanctuary to them for a little while. The temple's been ransacked. Nebuchadnezzar's taken and pillaged everything. The sanctuary, the temple, is the only lawful place to make sacrifices. To make sacrifices at any other place is a sin outright. And here we have God saying, I will be to them a little sanctuary in the country where they have gone, where they have been banished, where they have been exiled. This is one curious little scripture and without a doubt a very beautiful foreshadowing. We have Christ leaving His temple and being a sanctuary to them where they have gone. Christ has left His temple and is now a temple, a little sanctuary with us where we go. Whenever Christ speaks of the temple being destroyed, definitely twofold there. Don't get me wrong. But during the exile's time, they had something even more visibly than they should have. This really should have been a a beautiful growing time because they had to have been thinking that temple's destroyed, I can't make sacrifices. That has to be going through their mind because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And here we have God becoming a little sanctuary to them where they are. This had to have been a growing time. It's a beautiful representation of what should have been the way they should have been believing with their heart. Because they had to have. The ones that were believing with their heart had to have been confirmed in their faith. The ones that lived and were not believing with their heart were definitely confirmed in their unbelief. This was a beautiful time for the exiles. Don't get me wrong, they went through bad stuff. Temple was destroyed. Jerusalem burnt to the ground. And then them being in other countries as captives, exiles, you you see in Daniel, the book of Daniel, captives. But this really was a beautiful time. They had the perfect illustration that God was with them wherever they were without the temple, without the sacrifices. That they were still His remnant. And that definitely gives remnants a better understanding whenever you see two-thirds of your race die or be scattered to the winds. Throughout these chapters, there were two hints as to why God did this. The obvious one was because His holiness was assaulted outright. 
they did abom- uh, Israel, the church, his bride, did abominable things, detestable things in his sight. The other thing keeps speaking on how he had put Israel, put Jerusalem in the center of the nations, had put them on the pedestal. It was also to confirm to the other nations, which is even more curious because the other nations to the Jews were bad. Dogs. They were not part of the covenant children. Yet it speaks on how God used His wrath within His church to show the other nations. It speaks as to how it was to their benefit as well. To show that God is God. That He has to have things His way. And God was using His church to show the nations around her that it was true. I've always found that curious because the Jews didn't care about them in the first place. They were nothing. They weren't a part of God's people. Who cares about them? And in previous chapters, it speaks as to how far Israel went bad. That Israel would show favoritism to the other heathen nations even more so with nothing in return, just to be friendly. It spoke as to how, and it gave the illustration as Israel being the whore, and instead of the whore getting payment, the whore was giving payment to the men. That instead of even doing your job and getting your reward, you were giving that reward to the other nations the benefits and blessings, so to speak, to the other nations. God was very vulgar. And He did it in such a way that everyone would understand. Anyone reading would understand how severe, how serious this was. But in chapter 11, we went 11 chapters finally to see hope. That God will be a sanctuary to His people, to His remnant. He will not forget His covenant. And He will establish it. He will give the inheritance to Israel that He had promised. What makes a place, a sanctuary, a temple is the presence of the Lord. This is the way Jews understood it. Whenever Jews read this, they have to understand it that way. So even if you don't believe Christ to be Christ, to be Lord God, they still have to acknowledge, the person still has to acknowledge that the Lord in some way is present with the remnant, with believers. And Christians are referred to as being the temple of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 6. That's definitely a reoccurring theme in the New Testament. And I did put reoccurring theme and I I wrote myself scriptures. Ezekiel 5, 13, 15, 17, chapter 6, 10, 13, 14, chapter 7, 9. I I ran out of paper. But the, the, the main emphasis was I am the Lord God and you shall know that I am the Lord paraphrased as to what you say but 
that was the reoccurring theme throughout, starting in chapter 5 to verse 7, where it was speaking about all of the abominations and the bad things. God is so jealous of His holiness that He cannot stand sin. He hates sin. And sin must be punished. As in Ezekiel, there is no partiality. Those who live in sin shall surely die of it. And those who turn away from sin shall surely live. Don't be surprised by unbelievers. Man is rebellious against the Lord his God. Give warning and take offense. When the Lord your God has been assaulted, be His watchman. Let no blood be on your hands. God will not stand for His bride to seek after her own heart and to go whoring. He will visit the unfaithfulness with much chastising and rebuke. Open your eyes to the sacrifice of Christ and the sins of the church, His bride. If the Spirit of the Lord dwells within you, know that the holiness of the Lord dwells within as well. I spoke of how the meanings changed while I was trying to read Ezekiel. And I can't help but go back to chapter 3 in Ezekiel's charge. Just for the record, I wanted that to be the ending, but it can't be. Ezekiel's charge was in chapter 3 at the very end, verse 16, I want to say. Yeah, starting in verse 16, where it speaks of how Ezekiel must give warning, must take offense when God is offended. To tell the unrighteous man he is in sin, or else if he doesn't, the unrighteous man will die in his sin, but Ezekiel will have his blood on his hands because he gave no warning. He gave no rebuke. He did not stand up for his Lord God. Then it continues and says, tell the righteous man his sin. If he changes, then you have saved his life, as yours as well. Love your neighbor as yourself is definitely emphasized in this whole chapter. And it speaks even more so to the church. If it if loving your neighbor as yourself is going to start anywhere, it's going to start in the church. The church was supposed to be built on fellowship as one, as a body. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Sorry, it was so short.